0: Uh, Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 Galatians 5, we're going to start in verse 13 This is the same section that Dustin read for us last week Galatians 5, we'll start in verse 13. I tell you, um, Tori didn't know exactly where we were going with this, but these songs that we've sang this morning fit so very well uh, with, with everything that we've done. I tell you, I, I love those last couple verses of King of Kings. and the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath, till the stone was moved for good, and the Lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe for the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel and shall not faint. And that's the same gospel. We continue to go back to week after week after week. And certainly as we've been studying Galatians, by His blood, And in his name, in his freedom, I am free for the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me. Oh, that is good, good stuff. So is Galatians 5. Let's start in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You can summarize it this way. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and you devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What an incredible picture, isn't it? Just eating each other alive. But I say this, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You don't need it. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. It's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control and against such things there is no law and those who belong to Jesus Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the spirit let us keep in step with the spirit let us not become conceited provoking one another and envying one another Father, thank you once again for your word. Spirit, we pray that you would help us now to not only comprehend what's being said, but also, Lord, to to apply it. Help us to leave here today more transformed, more filled, being led greater step with the Spirit, more flesh being crucified, greater unity. God, that's what we pray for today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it has been for the past four, four months uh, that we have been considering uh, the fruit of the Spirit with consistency. I have been uh, personally greatly convicted uh, as we have worked week by week through the fruit. There's certain fruit that have convicted me more than others. I mentioned last week, uh, the fruit of self-control is one that I tend to struggle with significantly. But cultivating the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control is not an easy task. In fact, Paul, in what we just read, describes it as war. There's a war going on inside of us, the war against the flesh and the spirits. But the one thing that, that we've tried to emphasize week after week after week that, that sometimes can be hard for us to grasp because we, we tend to just gravitate towards making the world revolve around us, is the source of the fruit of the Spirit. What is the source of the fruit of the Spirit? Well, it's, it's right there in the name, isn't it, that's listed for us. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not fruit of love that I produce in me. It's the fruit of love that the Spirit produces in me. Spiritual fruit produced in us. You know, on the night before Jesus uh, would, would go to the cross and be crucified. He gathered his followers in, in the upper room. They were there celebrating the Passover meal. Uh, but there is a significant amount of conversation that went on that night that we actually have recorded for us in the New Testament. Uh, we call it, or, or theologians would call it, the upper room discourse, the upper room conversation. John chapter 14, all the way through John chapter 17, records the conversation that took place that particular night. And I want to focus in on a few key passages that help us to understand particularly the source of this spiritual fruit. Uh, John 14, 15 through 17. I'll have these on the screen. I won't have these on the screen. Nathan will have these on the screen for you behind me. Jesus teaches this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now notice what comes immediately after that. I, I love to quote that to my kids. When my kids are like, Dad, I love you. I'm like, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, just, to, just to try to keep them in line. But um, what comes immediately after that? Because after reading, you'll keep my commandments, I tend to back up and say, I don't do that very well. But notice what he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. How do we keep the commandments? I will give you a helper, I will give you a spirit who will dwell within you. A bit later, down in verse 26, the helper. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is what that helper will do. John 16, a couple chapters later, verse four through seven, Jesus makes an incredible point here that, that really seems hard to believe, but he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. I'm going back to the father and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is the line that's hard to believe. It is to your advantage that I go away. Can you imagine them believing them in that moment? Uh, no. (laughs) But Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Why, Jesus? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Isn't that an amazing truth? Jesus says it's of greater advantage to his followers that the Holy Spirit be with us than he himself be with us. Hmm. Following the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection... Just before sending back into heaven, Jesus reminded his disciples of those conversations that had taken place days, weeks earlier. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the world. And then on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, just the promises that Jesus had made back in John, the promise that he had just made to them in Acts 1.8, are fulfilled when the Spirit came. The Spirit came indwelling the apostles, and, and the book of Acts tells this continuing story of the Spirit uh, indwelling and empowering those who would call upon the name of Jesus. So much so to the point that Paul would later write this to the Corinthians Do you not know that your body is the temple? Of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. The Spirit indwells you, your, his house, his temple. And then there's these words written to Titus that I just think are so beautiful, tying all of the gospel in together. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Notice this last phrase, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that language, I I love that language, and I wish we could take maybe more time, but that idea of pouring out and and that Peter references there in Acts 2 at Pentecost, that's Old Testament language. This isn't something Jesus conjured up there in that upper room. This is something that's been promised by the prophets from the Old Testament, that God's Spirit would come and empower and indwell His people. And so I rehearse all of this with you to remind you that the spirit, the promised spirit, this spirit, the spirit of Jesus himself, the spirit sent from the father is the source of love and joy and peace and so on. That is our source. What a gift. What a helper. We're not in this alone. It's not up to us. It's an an advocate that comes from us. What power we have working in us, longing to work through us. Oh, incredible, incredible. And so the verses that follow this list of the fruit of the Spirit, Paul wants to make sure that we are making the connection between the source of this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, All of it put together. Have you ever gone to a lamp in your house and maybe it had a little turny clicky thing or maybe it had a push button clicky thing and you go to turn the light on and you click it and nothing happens. We've all done that. Your first instinct may be, well, the light bulbs burn out. Usually that's not the case. It's not plugged in. There's no no power source to it. That's what Paul wants to warn us about in these verses that follow. Make sure that we are plugged in to the power source so that we can cultivate this spiritual fruit in our lives. He he wants to make sure that when we need love and when we need patience and self-control, we're plugged into the source of such spiritual fruit. And so he gives us three directives in these verses that follow, and I'm anxious to share them with you today. And the first is this, crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh. Notice verse 24, it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Read through that again. Is there anything particular that stands out to you as you consider the statement that Paul makes there in verse 24? For me, it was the term have. Have crucified. The flesh, Past tense. And so Paul is saying all of those those passions and desires of the flesh that are listed there in verse 19, 20, and 21, and all the others that we could list out from our own daily experiences and struggles, they have been crucified. They they have been put to death past tense. And so when did this happen? Because for me, like Tori was mentioning a while ago, in the day-to-day struggle of my life, it does not feel and seem as if those passions of the flesh have been put to death. They seem quite alive most days. Well, if we go back to Galatians 2.20, and you can thumb your way back there a page or two, we read this. Paul writes, "...I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith." in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Similar, right? But but there is one particular difference that that is quite interesting. I feel like it's interesting. I hope you feel like it's interesting. In Galatians 2.20, the verb that says we have been crucified with Christ, that's a passive verb. And a passive verb means this. It means it's something that we're not really involved with. It's something that somebody else has accomplished for us. We're the passive person in this thing. It's something that Jesus has accomplished. But when we go to this same phrase that's used in chapter 5, verse 24 that we're looking at, we have crucified, it's an active verb. It's something that we are involved with. And so is this just one of those, you know, Biblical contradictions that Paul loves to throw at us, trying to determine, okay, well, which one is it, Paul? Which way does it go? I don't think it's one of those things that we just have to chalk up and say, I'm not going to understand that. I think it is something we, we can understand, but we do have to go to another passage to get a little more clarity. So I want to invite you to go with me to Romans chapter 6. You can keep your ribbon there in Galatians 5, but I want you to look with me at Romans chapter 6. This helps me and I hope helps you make a bit of sense out of this idea that we've been crucified. There's a passive part to that and there's an active part to it as well. Romans 6, we'll start in verse 1 just to pick up the the context. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid, he says. No way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that All of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We're buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And verse 5 here is where we really pick up in trying to gain understanding about this idea of crucified. For if we have been united with Jesus in death like his, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Notice verse 6. We know, and if you're an underliner, I'll emphasize a few words here if you like putting checks by certain words. We know may be a word to note, note. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin, that flesh, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What does Galatians say? We're free. We're free in Christ. We're no longer a slave to sin. Notice verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Notice verse 11, so you also must, here's another key word, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present or offer your your members, your fingers, your fists, your tongue, your eyes, your brain, don't offer your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but instead present or offer yourselves to God as those have been bought, brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. What Paul makes abundantly clear in Romans 6 is this, that when Jesus died, So did our old man. So did the the fleshly, sinful part of who we are. That's the idea of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I was not there in any active way 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified, putting my old man to death. I have been crucified with him. But while we still live in these unresurrected bodies on this sin-cursed earth, we embrace that truth by faith. By knowing considering, believing, as Paul marks throughout Romans chapter 6. Knowing is another way of saying believing or putting our faith in. So here's my testimony. I believe that when Jesus died and was buried, that my flesh died and was buried with him. And when he rose to new life, I also rose to a new life, a life no longer in the flesh, which is dead and buried, but a life now in the spirit, which is alive and well. And so back in Galatians 5, 24, how then do we crucify the flesh? What's this role that we play in mortifying sin in our lives? Here's the role. It's knowing It's believing, it's embracing the gospel message of what Jesus has accomplished. It's believing that our flesh, our flesh along with its passions and desires that Paul highlights here, was crucified with Jesus 2,000 years ago. It was rendered powerless. It has no authority over me anymore. And it's believing that because Jesus rose from the dead, We now have a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're to be led now, not by the flesh, which is dead, but by the Spirit, which is alive. Based on these truths, we must refuse to use our body, our members, our our tongue, as I said, our brain, our hands, for fleshly passions. I refuse to overindulge my stomach because according to the gospel, I am dead to the sin of gluttony. I refuse to speak to my children with harshness and anger because I'm dead to that desire and I'm alive to new life in the spirit that is love and joy and peace and patience. If a visual helps Christ has given us a great one in baptism. Maybe re- recounting your own baptism because baptism pictures for us this change. We, we understand baptism does not save us. Baptism is a picture of the salvation that God has brought to us. But you, you went under the water and when you came up out of that water, your old man stayed buried The flesh drowned with Christ. And you rose to a new life, living in the Spirit, following the Spirit. Which leads to our second directive that we find in verse 25. Keep in step with the Spirit in your new life. If we live by the Spirit, Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The point is, if our new life is by the Holy Spirit who lives within us, then we must do everything we can, everything in our power to remain in step with the Spirit in our day to day lives. In high school, I was a drum major of our high school band my junior and my senior year. And I, I had the job of standing on a very wobbly uh, stand that if I stood on today, would collapse immediately beneath my weight. But my job was to help the band keep beat, keep in the same time, but also to help the band stay on the right step. Because there's anything you think about a, a marching band They need to be in the right step. They they don't want to be out of line. You immediately notice when something is off. It's not a pretty sight. When you have someone step out with their left foot, when the rest of the band steps off with their right foot, you notice that. When you have somebody turn left, when the rest of the band turns right, you notice that something is off. Someone is out of step. It doesn't look right. And I want to mix my metaphor here for you as well, because I, I thought of this story from my junior high experience. We'll go to basketball. I think I've shared this one before. We were seventh grade, it was our first year to play basketball, we didn't have all these cool leagues and stuff that they have now where you can start when you're like two years old, something like that. Uh, but, but we were seventh graders, we were just getting started. We had a game against Liberty, this tiny school, this tiny gym, and uh, everybody was kinda getting some play time at that point. And, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the game, Shannon McKee breaks out on a fast break makes a line to the goal and shoots a layup and scores which He was ecstatic about everybody else knew that something was quite wrong in this moment You see Shannon had broke loose in a fast break and headed to the wrong goal and scored for the other team and so everybody else is sitting there like something is obviously wrong and Shannon is rejoicing in this first, his, his first career points uh, on his way to the NBA, which he never did make it to the NBA. I think that set him back. I think he might have quit basketball after seventh grade now that I think about it. I don't think I saw him again on the court. <laughs> Friends, the same is true with a follower of Jesus who possesses the Holy Spirit but doesn't follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. We stick out like a sore thumb. The Spirit goes left, I go right. The Spirit says, love your wife. And I say, "Uh, I think she needs to love me more. The Spirit says, love your enemy. And I say, no, I'm going to work on my revenge. The Spirit says, don't eat that cake. And I say, I think I'll have a third piece. You get what Paul's saying here. When we act as if we are... King instead of Jesus and his spirit that is meant to to lead us being king, then we're out of step. We're out of sync. To be led by the spirit, to keep in step with the spirit, really is the basic idea of discipleship. A disciple is somebody who follows. They follow a teacher, they, they follow a master, they follow a rabbi. We're following Jesus by following the Spirit, His Spirit. And let me me make one additional point here before we go to verse 26. The Spirit knows best. It's important that we get that. It's important that we know that the Spirit knows what is best. I mean that so often in our lives, we pridefully convince ourselves that we know the best way to respond to a particular problem or situation that's been placed in front of us. That we know the best way to walk through this trial or this temptation that's been laid out in front of us. That we're strong enough, we're smart enough, we're we're gifted enough to take whatever life throws at us. We think we know best. I'm here to tell you, no, the Spirit knows best. Over and over, the Bible teaches us that this is not true. We're not smart enough. We're not strong enough. We're not gifted enough. And over and over, the track record, our own track record, your own track record is proven that this is not true. Because how many times have we fallen on our face? When we take the lead, we just make it worse. This would be like my family making a trip to Oklahoma and uh, throwing the keys to Judson and saying, Hey, buddy, why don't you get us there? It's your turn. But well, Judson, one, he doesn't know how to drive. He, do- he, doesn't, he can't see over the steering wheel, so there's a couple things. And then, even as many times as he's been, he doesn't know the way to get there. But that's us, that's me. Spirit, I got this. You take the day off, I'll take the lead. I'll make the right steps. I'll be smart enough. I'll get it done. No, 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 no. The Spirit knows best. The Spirit is powerful, smart, capable of helping us respond to others as Jesus would respond to others to navigate temptation trials like Jesus would. We are called to submit ourselves to the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. Remember that. The Spirit knows best. And when we do this, when we remain in step with the Spirit, when we're being led by the Spirit, what's the result? Spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit. christ likeness, particularly to the Galatians, the result would be unity. And that leads to the final point, verse 26. 26 is a bit of a bridge between chapter 5 and what we move into in chapter 6. But he says this, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Once again, we feel the pulse of Paul's letter to the Galatians again. Why is he writing a letter to the Galatians? Because they were fighting They were at war amongst themselves. They were not unified. There were divisions. Primarily, those divisions were over the idea of grace versus works. Where does our righteousness come from? Do we have to follow the the customs and the traditions of of the Jewish, uh, the Judaizers? Or or can Gentiles just simply move into this thing called the family of God? And, And here in verse 26, Paul offers these fighting Galatians instructions to drop the prideful conceit. And to humble yourselves. And I'm not going to rehash all of the drama uh, that we've talked about from chapters 1 to chapter 5. You can go back and, and work through all of those sermons. But obviously they were not crucifying the flesh. Because the fruit of the flesh was evident in their fellowship. That list, 19 through 21, Paul did not pull that out of thin air. Much of it described their behavior as they were striving to follow Jesus, but instead following the flesh. Obviously, they were not keeping in step with the Holy Spirit because they were charting their own sinful, scorched, burn-the-earth, burn-the-bridges kind of way of life instead of following Jesus by following the Spirit. And conceit, which he opens with here, don't become conceited, it's pride. Conceit is when I, I, I say or I act as if I'm better than you. That that my opinion about something matters more than yours. Uh, Conceit is is me before you. And how have we defined love? Love is you before me. Your concerns, your interests matter more than my own. Look at Galatians 5.13 again. It's exactly what he says. sorry I didn't keep my ribbon there you were called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another the whole law is in one word you shall love your neighbors yourself but if you bite and devour one another watch out that you're not consumed by one another Paul's making this connection on both sides of this idea of the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He he brings up their present struggle of fighting and disunity. Conceit always provokes others and spurs others to envy. That's the way it works. When you puff your chest out and say, I'm better than you, what's the temptation that's presented in the other person? No, you're not. I'm better than you get a bunch of guys together and start telling their stories. Well, I've got a better story than that. Conceit draws a line in the sand and says, this is what matters more. And others are provoked to challenge it. Here's what James writes about this. This This is beautiful from James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, by his good conduct, let him show his works with meekness and wisdom, fruit of the Spirit. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, conceit in your heart, don't boast and be false against the truth. Because that is not a wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly. It is unspiritual. Listen to this word. It's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. And every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial. It's sincere. Sound familiar? Yeah. If you are a person who only has room for your opinion, your way of doing things, your kingdom, then then we have a real problem. And I say that directed primarily as we think about ourselves as, as a church fellowship. Because there's only room for one king here. And it ain't me, and it ain't you. It's King Jesus. This is his church. It's not my church. It's not your church. He said, it's my church. I'll I'll build my church. He's the head of the body. It's his church. He's the one who came and died, giving his life so that this might come into existence. And so that we might represent him and his interests, not me and my interests. And the Galatians, this is where they were out of step. So how do we do this? How do we maintain unity? How do we crucify the flesh? How do we keep in step with the spirit? Primarily, focus on the gospel. <laughs> Set your eyes on Jesus, his death, his resurrection. I'm not, I'm not trying to pull some spiritual jujitsu on you here. Like you just, oh, just kind of a mind over matter. Just direct and divert your attention to Jesus, and then you won't really think about yourself. When we say that you have to trust in Jesus and what he's done, that, that message of what, what Jesus has done that we, we emphasize week after week, uh, from, from the pulpit and, and in Scripture we read and hopefully in conversation you have and certainly in songs that we sing, that is central, absolutely central to who we are. It must be central in our individual lives and it must remain central for this fellowship to continue in health. The whole of the Christian life, Our hope of heaven, our hope of resurrection. When you're sitting in a funeral service for a 14-year-old girl, what's central there? Only the death and resurrection of Jesus. When you're watching somebody get baptized, what's central there? The death and resurrection of Jesus. When a man and a woman stand in front of a group of people and commit and covenant with one another, I do, what's central there? The death and resurrection of Jesus. The husband and the bride in covenant together. The hope that we have that that when we pray, Somebody's listening and somebody is eager to respond to what we say. Our hope of daily crucifying the flesh and its passions and desires and finally gaining victory over the anger or the worry or whatever sin it is that plagues us and burdens us. What's central? Jesus' death. And Jesus' resurrection, Romans chapter 6, I died with him. I don't need to yield my members any longer to these desires. I'm free. The whole of the Christian life springs forth from the cross and the empty tomb. So if we're going to crucify the flesh, then we must read, we must study this good news we must sing this good news praise god for this good news we must invite others into an understanding of this good news we must invite others to regularly preach this good news to us that's why i'm always so encouraged by your faithfulness to be here and we want to and and desire to continue to every week as often as we can remind you of jesus death and his resurrection for your own good for your own benefit I also want to add in here as we think about yes we need to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ part of that is this key of prayer and fasting what do, what do prayer and fasting communicate in relation to the gospel that I can't do this that I'm dependent upon a power outside of me. It's not the fruit of Josh, it's the fruit of the Spirit, and I need the fruit of that Spirit right now. That's how we keep in step, that's how we crucify, day after day. How do we be led by the Spirit? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? Again, read the Scriptures. The scriptures help us, the truth in God's Word helps us to discern what's of the Spirit and what's of the world. What's the truth that God speaks versus the lies that we find in the world? And guys, this is nothing new. This is Genesis 3. God spoke truth to Adam and Eve and said, you can eat freely of all this in the garden, but this one thing, I don't want you to do. But what immediately happens? Satan comes in and he introduces a lie. Did God really say that? Is that really what he meant? We face that same Battle, temptation every day. If we're led by the Spirit, we must be in the Word of God so that we see what is just and what is right. We pray for wisdom. We pray for direction. James 1, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God who gives liberally. And ultimately what it means to be led by the Spirit, it comes to this submitting ourselves to the spirit relinquishing our control in the moment by moment day to day of life do not grieve the spirit do not quench the spirit are the warnings we find in the pages of the new testament When you feel that tug of conviction in your life, when the Spirit is reminding you that worry, worry is is not the direction to let your mind go in this moment, and the Spirit is is pulling you, attempting to pull you away from that, that fruit of the flesh, in that moment we must pray a prayer of surrender. And we must submit ourselves and say, you're right. Help me to move in the right direction. Help me to be led by you. Well, I think back over all of these fruit. And one of the ones that that I truly long for us to display more readily in our homes, in our church fellowship, and, and most certainly in our community one I really long for us to be led by the Spirit in His kindness and gentleness. Because those two will stand out in stark contrast to what most people see today when you turn on the news or the TV or drive down the road or walk next to people in the mall. <laughs> Submit ourselves to the Spirit in that area of life. And finally, we strive for unity and this is where, again, I, I mentioned it bleeds into chapter 6 because he immediately begins to address some very practical and specific things. And I'm, I'm pumped to get there next week. But if the Spirit is leading us, you know, we'll be humble. We won't be filled with conceit. As a church, as individuals who make it up, we have to remember that, that central to our fellowship and the unity is not how and when and the manner in which Jesus is going to return. It's not a whole host of other preferences and things that we could throw on the table and say, well, I like when we do things this way or I like things that way. It's not, well, I think we should have got a different kind of door. I don't like that door. It's not political affiliation. Right? Right? Let's make sure we got that one clear. It's not personality. That's the be- to me this is the beauty of the church. We have all sorts of differences. What is it that pulls us together? It's the death and the resurrection of our savior Jesus Christ. He's why we should come back week after week. He's why we should come back in humility week after week. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of his death and resurrection, is the core of the earth that is meant to pull everything in and hold it all together. And when we begin to see in our own individual lives, and God forbid when we begin to see in the life of this church things beginning to spin out of control, something's wrong. At the core, something's off with the way we're perceiving and believing and embracing, knowing and believing and putting our faith in what Jesus accomplished for us. It's central. Paul makes it abundantly clear from verse one of Galatians to the end, which is drawing near. Let's keep it central. Crucify the flesh. Keep in step with the Spirit and strive for unity. Let's bow for prayer. As always, I want to give you just a moment here. Maybe you've been playing king. You've been trying to lead and trailblaze through life and you have been hurting people, burning bridges, and today you're just convicted to stop and submit. Maybe you've been battling some of the desires of the flesh and you've been losing. Today's the day to know and consider that in Jesus. That old man has no authority. You have new life in Jesus. Maybe you've been tempted to distance yourself, to, to be conceited because you feel that your opinions on matters are better than others and you're superior to them and today you've been humbled to be reminded that we all stand equally, we all kneel equally at the cross. I wanna give you some time to just pray. The prayer that you need to pray. Father, what incredible grace you've shown us. What good news we have in Jesus. What an incredible gift you've given us in the Spirit to help us. And yet, God, so often, I resist those things. In my pride, I push back. I turn the other direction. Believing that I can do this And yet you continue to show grace. You continue to be patient and merciful. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for truth that redirects us. And so God, I pray that today, as you've heard prayers from your people, Lord, that you would respond with power. You would respond accomplishing the miraculous in changing us, conforming us more to the image of Jesus. We look forward to seeing what you'll do throughout this week and in the weeks and months and years to come. Thank you for the hope we have because of the good, good news of Jesus, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Before Josh comes, I want to say one more thing Um, if you're here and these truths seem foreign to you this this idea that you're hearing of knowing and believing and accepting what Jesus did 2,000 years ago upon faith, if that's foreign to you, please, please please come and talk to me, talk to somebody, find somebody to help answer some of those questions about what that Means and what that entails. That's why we're here. We gather because of what Jesus has accomplished, because we have put our faith in him, and that is what gives us hope. That is how I know that if I were to be in a casket in this very room by the end of the week, I'm secure with the Father. I have a hope for eternity, not because of anything I've done, not because of my works, not because I'm more practicing of jewish traditions than others it's because of jesus and his work and we want to make sure that everybody here is abundantly clear on that and so don't don't feel embarrassed and don't feel ashamed to ask those questions we want you to ask them and we we it would be a great joy to help you fill in any gaps that i've left today in my inadequacy and so Uh, Please, please, please respond in those things, and we will respond with the grace and goodness of God.